Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Jackie Parkham, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at the McGovern Medical School, which is a part of the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. Dr. Parkham began her education at UC Berkeley, studying biochemistry and cellular biology, and then went on to complete both medical school and residency in OBGYN at the University of California, San Francisco. Her maternal fetal medicine fellowship was completed both at UCSF and the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. I have asked her here today to talk about what life is like for a practicing OBGYN in this time and her very interesting research, especially as it relates to healthcare disparities. Dr. Parkham, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Good, good. Glad to hear it. So could you tell us about yourself and how you came to work where you do? Sure. Um, So as you mentioned, I'm currently in Houston at UT Health, and we've been in Houston for um, almost five years now, Um, but I'm not a Texan. Um, We we moved here for work. So my husband's a PhD scientist, and he was recruited to Baylor um, to start his lab, and Mm -hmm. um, I... It sounds like I did two fellowships, but really I started fellowship at UCSF, um, as you mentioned, and then I transferred over to Baylor when my husband moved to Baylor to start his lab. So that's how we ended up in Houston. It was for work. Okay. Um, and it's really been a great place, actually, to work um, and to do research. Have you ever been to the Texas Medical Center? I haven't. I don't even think I've ever been to Houston, which is crazy considering how how many medical things go on there and how big of a city it is. But um, I think I've yeah. had I've had another Texan on the show as well. So there's a lot going on there for sure. Yeah. Yes, um, I saw that. Yeah, I didn't appreciate how um, kind of amazing it is. It's a city of, of hospitals and medical schools together. So UT and Baylor medical schools are across the street. And then MD Anderson is right next door. And then there are a mm-hmm. bunch of um, private hospitals all together. And so... It's actually a great place for us to come uh, and work and now to raise our children. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot, probably a lot of like crosstalk and then a lot of situations like yours where, you know, a spouse gets recruited or a partner gets recruited one place and then there's a job across the street for you at another place. And um, I had a similar experience when I was in Baltimore. My husband was at the University of Maryland and I was at Johns Hopkins. And I think any city that has that kind of interplay always wins. You know, they always end up with you know, a a bigger diversity of people and people doing interesting things. So that's great. Um, Usually at the top of the show, I like to summarize the news, but honestly, lately it feels like we're living in a world where there are two Americas and therefore two sets of news. Unfortunately, only one of them seems to fully embrace science. Mostly I've tried to stay busy, but I'm still shocked and sometimes very angry that there are people in our country who refuse to listen to science, who refuse to wear masks and protect people like me with underlying medical conditions. And I think um, there are people who think social distancing is a joke um, and that not doing it is somehow brave. It's very hard to be a mom during this time, worrying about when to send kids back to school and into the world. It's also hard to be a human being during this time with constant new variables introduced into the narrative, like this new vasculitis-like syndrome emerging in kids, um, the emerging data about asymptomatic transmission of the virus, and the seemingly constant stream of political theater that does little to calm and serve the country. 
And it's hard to be a physician in this time when the urge to help one's patients and serve alongside one's colleagues is juxtaposed against the desire to protect yourself and your family. It's made even more confusing by the lack of a cohesive national plan for ensuring adequate testing, providing protective equipment, and even the basic necessity of being heard when one speaks the truth. So, um, you know, a lot going on. So deep breath. But as a pathologist in the time of COVID, my main interface with the virus has been through providing well-vetted testing. But my mind keeps focusing on the other area of my training, which was um, not only gynecologic, but also perinatal pathology. I think having children changed me and I will always be drawn to this area. Um, I know several people who are pregnant right now and some who have had their babies during this time, and it's a tough road. Um, it seems like there's still so much we don't know and waiting for science to figure things out while you're worried about your baby and yourself. Well, I think it's very hard. So how are you finding this time as an OBGYN who sees high risk patients? How does it compare to say a year ago? Before COVID-19, I was already really accustomed to dealing with anxiety um, because pregnancy, whether you have a high risk or a low risk pregnancy is inherently um, stressful for a lot of people and families. And there's so many parts of it that you can't control, you know, the physical and the emotional changes, um, you know, the process of birth is very, is very stressful for a lot of people. Um, and then women develop complications that they didn't think that they could get. Um, and so if when you add that additional layer on of uncertainty with COVID, mm-hmm. um, I think it just raises everybody's level. There's sort of attention there, not just with the the women, the patients that come in, but also the providers who are afraid of getting sick and bring it home to their families or their elderly loved ones, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I think as a group, um, our division has done, you know, pretty well because our part of our job is to talk with women and families about how to manage their stress and about tough diagnoses, both for mom and baby. And so we're sort of accustomed to, um, we're sort of accustomed to being these, these mediators in these tough situations, but, um, it is hard. There's a lot we don't know about COVID and pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. And I would assume that all OBGYNs are used to, like you say, managing this stress of patients on a normal day, but that your patients probably are enriched for people with complications or underlying problems already medically. So I would think that you would have well-tread paths of helping people deal with stress compared to perhaps other kinds of physicians. So I think it's really interesting to talk to you today. Um, Do you remember when you first realized that COVID-19 was going to be really disruptive um, in all of our lives? Was it one moment where you realized that? Or um, do you think it sort of gradually crept up on you? Yeah, I was was trying to think about when when we really felt like there was a difference and there was sort of a gradualness to it be, I think because Houston was sort of late in in having cases so the reality felt a little bit further away but I do mm-hmm. remember um, you know spring break was planned for uh, early mid-march something like that and um, my daughter my five-year-old has a has a best friend whose parents are physicians at MD Anderson and we were planning to have some play dates and things over over spring break and then we touched base around that time and 
we were just like, well, do we have to cancel all this? <laughs> do we have to cancel this, these play dates? And we're like, yeah, I guess so. And then that spring break just turned into, you know, forever break essentially. Yeah. Um, and so sort of in, it sounds kind of trivial, but that, that moment in time where it was like the kids came home from school and then never went back, um, yeah. you know, feels like that was a big switch for us. Definitely. And I think still one of the things that is hard as a mom is to kind of talking to other moms that I know, everyone's just wondering, should we do camp this summer? Should we do X, Y, and Z? Can I get a nanny? Is that safe? And, you know, everyone's risk thresholds are different and everyone's considerations are different, but it is, it is interesting how sometimes the bookmarks for when you start to do different things have to do with planning things for your children, which is not not necessarily (laughs) what you think it's going to be. So, um, so this may be a softball question, but is COVID-19 positivity in a patient enough to automatically make that pregnant patient high risk? Um, is this a reason why patients are being sort of triaged to you necessarily, automatically? Um, yes and no. Um, I think, you know, what, I, I don't think high risk is, or risk is actually like a, so black and white, right? Like sometimes mm-hmm. people will be like, am I, am I high risk? like, well, it's kind of relative, right? There, there are mm-hmm. definitely complications that we see in pregnancy where a generalist might consider that high risk, but in the spectrum of things that we see in maternal fetal medicine, it's actually pretty mm-hmm. low risk on the scale, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, in terms of COVID positivity, um, you know, as you know, the majority of people, and this is really good news, right, are uh, not for transmission, but for, for the illness, the majority of people mm-hmm. are asymptomatic or have mild cases. Right. And so- what we've seen in pregnancy cohorts and case series that have sort of trickled out um, over the past few weeks is that the data so far are pretty reassuring for pregnancy in that pregnant women don't appear to be at greater risk for severe disease or decompensation compared to the general adult population. Um, and that was really a concern when it first came out because, you know, for uh, H1N1 pandemic, um, mm-hmm which is the one in most recent memory, uh, pregnant women were at higher risk for decompensation and death. And so respiratory illness um, in the pregnant population is something we really take seriously. So the, so these data coming out showing that, you know, the risk of severe disease is similar to the adult population is, is reassuring in some sense, but then on the same, at the same time, you can't be overly reassuring because pregnant women get sick just like everybody else. And right. so there is going to be that subset of women um, who who will get very uh, sick, and there have been maternal deaths reported, thankfully rare. But um, mm-hmm. you know, anyone with severe respiratory compromise that can happen to. And so we do. Um, we work in a hospital system that has a number of community hospitals, and then sort of a central, you know, academic spot in the medical in the med- main medical center. And so Mm -hmm. we have a system in which women who are COVID positive, who are either ill or going to deliver, are all transferred into the medical center so that um, they can be in the hospital with the greatest amount of resources and concentration of specialists. So we do have sort of a system built in place in Houston for that. Right. And so um, in talking about the spectrum of disease noted in pregnant women, like you say, some some patients are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. 
I think it's a case series out of Iran. They were talking about women who are pregnant who got very ill. And obviously that's the far end of the spectrum. But um, just in your experience, like you said, um, it seems like most cases are either mild or asymptomatic. Are there any sort of characteristic features you're noting in COVID positive women as they deliver? Are they more, um, you know, hemodynamically unstable? Is this something, because people are talking about maybe hypercoagulability being part of this spectrum. Is that something that you all are thinking of as MFM doctors? I know you take care of patients with things like preeclampsia and help. So you're, you know, not accustomed to dealing with those kinds of situations per se, but is there anything like that that you're noticing in the women who are delivering? Um, w- one of the things that came out of the early data in New York was that mm-hmm. p- patients coming in, a high proportion of patients coming in were asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the kind of scary thing in some of these series is that they would come in and test positive and they were asymptomatic. And then over the course of their hospitalization would decompensate. And whether that was going to be the natural history of COVID-19, the disease itself, or whether the you know birth process and all of the physiologic changes, et cetera, that go on with that contributed mm-hmm. to that. I don't think we really, uh, I don't think we really know for sure. Um, but, you know, one of the things that were one of our jobs as maternal fetal medicine docs is really to remind um, our colleagues and our, you know, all the people we work with in different teams is that we need to treat the women the same way we would if they, if they weren't pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of one of the things, you know, some questions that come up I can't say this has happened personally to me, but what I've heard, you know, sometimes people are like, well, is it okay for a mom to try this experimental drug or to get convalescent plasma or to do these things that we don't, you know, we don't know if they're safe um, Mm -hmm. in pregnancy. And the first rule is always, you need to do whatever you need to do to save the mom. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if she's not doing well, then the baby's not going to do well. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it's interesting when we talk with, um, you know, people, other docs and um, consultants and things who aren't used to to managing pregnant women, a lot of the times the thoughts go around, how does this affect the baby? How does this affect the baby? Right. Is this imaging safe for the baby? Is this medicine safe for the baby? Hey, the general rule is if mom is doing better, then baby will do better. You know? right. And we'll right. figure out these theoretic concerns and such later. It's not that they're not valid. They are. Um, right. but we, sometimes we, that focus shifts from the mom who, who needs to be, who we need to take care of first, exactly. um, right. And, you know, to the baby. Yeah. And the temptation to sort of treat mom with, with kid gloves. And I, I spoke with some, um, a physician who worked, um, and studied vaccine development in things like Ebola in Africa and how at first pregnant women were not being given the vaccine for those same reasons, because no one knew how it would affect the babies. But then the moms, obviously, when they got sick with something like Ebola, the survival rate was almost non-existent in that setting. So the other thing I, I wonder about is how women will be included, pregnant women will be included in the vaccine trials and how vaccines will be disseminated to this population because you would think, I know at least when I was pregnant, everyone was asking me every five minutes if I'd been vaccinated for (laughs) XYZ, for, you know, influenza, I was first in line to get that vaccine, you know, so it's, it's a population that you think about, um, 
uh, protecting from from especially respiratory illness, as you say, it can be very serious. So, um, and I don't really hear that many people talking about how pregnant women are going to be included in the vaccine and and triaged into making sure that it's safe in this population. So that'll be another thing I think to keep yeah. an eye on, especially in and that it's same. the vaccine, the, yeah. definitely the vaccine trials, but also um, you know the clinical trials for therapy also. Mm-hmm. You know, traditionally, pregnant women are excluded from um, from these large clinical trials. But then what happens is we get into this cycle in which they've been excluded because of concerns mm-hmm. of safety, but then we don't have the data to show that it's safe or effective in pregnant women. So then right. there are all these medications and classes of medications that are that are not used in pregnancy because we don't have this data, but we can't get the data because no one will because, study them. Because, and so, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yes. it, it's a hard study to design. It's hard to imagine as a pregnant woman signing up for a drug trial study. I mean, that would be um, courageous, but in this time, in this acute time when we need therapies, and that's going to make the difference between you know, um, risk stratification and how we can manage people who get very sick. It's, it's so important, um, to think about that. And I, especially, you know, the therapies and the vaccines just going forward, it's not like people are going to stop getting pregnant. So, um, that's something that I think everyone needs to think about, but the, I think the temptation in our society is to treat pregnant women with kid gloves, you know, and to just sort of back away slowly and people forget that they're going to get sick just like everyone else. So yeah, it's a good thing to think about. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, always other admire, people for, yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but other people no, forget, yeah. but the, the, the women and their families don't yeah. forget, right? The pregnant people, right. it's yes. like front of, front of their minds, of course. Exactly. Oh, I'm sure. Like I said, I, I was um, nervous enough being pregnant um, during normal times, although I was pregnant during the Zika outbreak, but mm. I was I was relatively confident that I was safe because I wasn't in a place where it was being transmitted, you know, and I don't think any woman in the world at this point can be confident of that with COVID because it's kind of everywhere. And it's, you, you know, with this asymptomatic thing, you never know who's even carrying it. So um, yeah, I always said that I admire MFM doctors because I've been pregnant and I know how anxious I was and um, you just deal with that all the time. So you're, um, you're really out there doing it. Um, And like we're talking about the science around COVID during pregnancy still developing, um, there's emerging evidence, especially of IgM antibodies being found in babies, suggesting that this um, transmission of COVID-19 during pregnancy may happen at least some of the time. Although these studies are fraught in terms of how they're collecting the samples, when they're collecting them. Um, but the presence of IgM antibodies is pretty suggestive. How are you addressing this with patients? I imagine this is a discussion that you're having more than one time a week, maybe more than one time a day. Um, <laughs> is, is this common? And how do you address this with people, with worried people, I imagine? Yeah, I actually feel like the, the academic debate around this has been more um, sort of more active and interesting than the concerns that I've uh, been getting from patients, interestingly, mm-hmm. but um, oh, yeah. so 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 you're right. There have been some studies that have suggested potentially that vertical transmission can occur. Um, and when you think about vertical transmission, we have to think about you know there's different or transmission to the neonate rather. There's different routes, right? So this IgM thing you're talking about suggested potentially one. Uh, one route, which is transplacental, so from mom right. to baby while the baby's in utero, and that's how Zika, we knew Zika could be transmitted that way. And that's sort of the, the scariest way, right? But another right. way could be, um, as we know from other viruses, 
from exposure to vaginal secretions, either from having, you know, your membranes um, ruptured for very long or through the process of vaginal birth. Um, and then there's, you know, horizontally, so postpartum, just having close contact with mom who's COVID-19 positive and then have, you know, babies getting it sort of the normal way that the rest of us get it. Um, and the data for placental passage of the virus is actually pretty, it's a bit, it's spotty. We're getting like things, you know, some reports trickling out. One is of this, you know, couple of cases out of China, of um, babies having IgM, which doesn't cross the placenta. And so those studies suggested mm -hmm. that that IgM was produced by the baby um, due to uh, an exposure in utero. But, you know, there's caveats with that. Those babies were all well. Uh, right. And none of them tested positive by the gold standard molecular testing, of, PCR, you know, swabbing yeah. their uh, mm -hmm. nasopharyngeal swabs and such. Um, and then IgM is one of those, you know, these antibody tests and serologic tests are can be false positive also. So when you mm -hmm. don't have kind of two, two corroborating uh, positive, yeah. yes, corroborating yeah. pieces yeah. of data, yeah. uh, it can be difficult. I haven't seen any studies of the amniotic fluid testing positive, although there haven't been a ton of you know, a ton of cases reported, but um, that's, you know, Zika, CMV, all these other things that we're really worried about that can cause really severe congenital syndromes. We can detect it in the amniotic fluid and that hasn't been true yet yeah. for SARS-CoV-2. Um, but then on the flip side, you do hear about these babies who have tested positive soon after birth, you know, within half a day or a day of birth. And so mm -hmm. people are trying to figure out, well, where did that come from? I think if it does happen in the placenta, it seems like it's pretty rare. And when we haven't ha yeah. seen like pathologic definitive evidence that there's passage from the maternal circulation to the fetal circulation that hasn't definitively been shown or proven yet. Um, there was one interesting path case series that came out, I think just last week out of Northwestern that had 16 uh, COVID placentas and they, they compared them to... Um, like thousands of controls so that they could show that there was a significant difference in these um, specific path, uh, path lesions. And I'm not a placental pathologist, but um, things like um, villitis and um, some lymphocytic infiltration and other things that I'm, I might be saying, remembering wrong now. Um, but also this um, finding they said of deciduous maternal vascular malperfusion, I think was what it was okay. called. Yeah. Yeah. That seems um, so, like a, yeah. That's interesting because those are all kind of um, not specific necessarily to uh, SARS-CoV-2. I'll have to look into that case series and I'll link it in the notes for people who want to look it up. But um, my, uh, I'm married to an epidemiologist and sometimes when I bring things up, you know, like I'll, I'll say something and he'll say, well, don't you think if that were happening that we would know it by now? Like, don't you think if, if, transplacental transmission was happening, we would know it by now because I'm sure enough mm. babies have been born to COVID positive moms at this point that something would be showing up. Of course, you never know with babies, stuff can happen way down the road, but um, it's an interesting thing to think about. I just wondered if patients, it's interesting that you say that this is something that you and your colleagues are talking about more than the patients are talking about um, or well, from, coming and questioning you. But yeah. From the vertical transmission standpoint, it seems it's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of interest, you know, in the academic community to talk about that between yeah. placental people, people and things like that. But it is a, yeah. it is an important issue for patients um, at the time yeah. of birth for a practical reason. 
which is that many hospitals have a policy of separating babies from moms who test positive. And mm-hmm. you can imagine um, that's heartbreaking. how painful yeah. that is, um, you know, yeah. for the mom, for the families. And also, it's actually, you know, pretty impractical for a lot of families um, to be able to right. quarantine, um, you know, to be able to quarantine mom from the baby for 14 days or until she tests negative. And then think about if the mom is positive, they've been at home with their partner or their husband or their mother-in-law or whoever, and those people may also be positive. And so the reality is these babies are going to go home and be in a situation where they can't fully be um, separated from these people. And there's a, there's probably, um, you know, good reason to think that they, they don't need to be right. All of these things are, you know, you alluded to this earlier, there are, it's not you're at risk or you're not, it's not that you're like fully separated or you're, you know, fully exposed, super high risk. There's in between, you know, there's an in between mm-hmm. there. And so it has to be a shared decision making process and you have to meet par- parents and families where they're at. So if a family says, this is our living situation, we don't have an extra room. We have mm-hmm. to, you know, I'm going to breastfeed my baby. That's really important to me. Um, these different things, whatever factors they are, then we need to say, okay, then doing that, how can we reduce the risk of transmission and reduce harm? Okay, right. let's talk about hand hygiene. Let's talk about mask wearing. Let's talk about cleaning your pump right. parts. Um, things like that, um, rather than saying, "Nope, you guys have to be, <laughs> you have to be in this yeah. room by yourself, and you have to be yeah. over here, and your baby can't go baby- home until there's a negative person." And yeah, you know. I, yeah, and the practicalities of that. I, I mean, it, it brings up some of the same questions that. Um, healthcare workers are asking themselves about going home at the end of a shift, you know, I mean, should you, I I know physicians who are working in the hospital who just don't see their families anymore because they're too afraid to see their families anymore. So, um, and then I know some people who say, I just wash my clothes and take a shower when I get home. So it's, it's, um, I feel like there's still so much we don't understand about, you know, um, transmission. I mean, the CDC recently sort of frame shifted from saying, you know, focusing on fomite transmission, which is kind of how I think about like wiping everything down and all that kind of stuff to kind of saying like, actually, it's more of a proximity thing. It's, it's more of masking is what you need to worry about and, and being in um, indoor spaces with lots of people who don't have masks on, that seems to be a higher risk situation. So as that evolves, everyone kind of has to decide for themselves and um, the practicalities of isolating an infant from their mother, it seems Um, pretty problematic to me as someone who's had a couple of children. They're not away from you for more than, you know, a few moments in those first weeks. So, um, yeah. And we don't really know what the effect of that would be on, you know, mom's mental health and well-being as well. Right. Um, And babies too. You know, we know. know, Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, we know that they will still, obviously they would still be able to bond and, you know, every. It's not like all would be lost um, right. in those days that the mom is, is separated, but you're just going through such a big transition. And I feel yeah. like the closeness of your baby is the one thing that sort of really helps mm-hmm. get you through those hard days of recovery. <laughs> immediately yeah, those postpartum. first few weeks postpartum, I think um, it's never what any, both of the times I, or all the times I went through it, it was never what I expected it was going to be. And it was different each time. And it was always hard in a different way. 
and in a way I didn't expect. And you're right. The the feedback you get from your baby is so helpful. So to think of that sort of being removed while you also find out you're positive for COVID-19, that would be um, uniquely difficult. So um, that segues nicely into my next question about um, you. uh, I assume you have strategies for helping patients deal with anxiety from your job normally. Um, Would you mind sharing not only during this time, but even prior, like what are your go-to moves helping patients with their anxiety, not only during labor, but also I'm assuming you're seeing your patients frequently before they deliver. Um, Are your go-to moves still working now or have you had to develop new ones or how does that work? Yeah. Well, I should say, um, you know, in my practice right now, I mostly am a consultant. So I don't Mm -hmm. have a lot of um, my own cohort of patients that I follow through their pregnancy anymore, um, although that's a part of practice that I miss. Um, and there are sort of, you know, we all know about the things that you should be doing to reduce your stress and to deal with anxiety, yeah. you know, like mindfulness and exercise right. and self-care and therapy and all these things that are, you know, nice to think about. And some people can successfully implement them on a regular basis, but also, you know, out of reach or unattainable for people, especially now when it's really a privilege to be able to get time, you know, if you have other children in the house or you have a job or a working spouse or whatever it is, it's really a privilege to be able to have that time (laughs) where you could go and do these things uninterrupted. Um, But what I normally do with patients is the first thing is, is to really listen and try to figure out what the source of the anxiety is. And for every woman, it's different. You know, I, I'm always fascinated and surprised by um, some of the things that people worry about. And sometimes it takes a while to kind of get to it. Um, But you can kind of tell by looking at people if you've gotten there or not. So the first thing is to figure out, you know, what it is that's at the top of their mind that's really bothering them. And then often um, it's to normalize what that feeling is. So for example, you know, women who've had Um, For example, pregnancy loss, miscarriage, second trimester loss, neonatal loss, any of these things, imagine them in their next pregnancy. They're nervous the whole time, Um, Mm -hmm. especially when you reach kind of those critical milestones where they remember, this is when I started bleeding last time, or this is when I got sick last time. Um, And so, for instance, if I'm seeing that person and they're coming for an ultrasound and a consult... um, and they're worried about that specific thing, we will spend time talking about how this time it's different and how the things that we're seeing are very reassuring and how we're going to you know, monitor those things going forward and how she actually has no control over any of those outcomes. So that's one of the hardest things is I think as women and mothers um, tend to tend to find ways that things were their fault, right? That that mom guilt thing is a real thing, right? It's a real thing even before they come out for real. Yes. Yes. It's, it's, and it's, it can be paralyzing. And even for things where I think intuitively people know they had nothing to do with it. For example, like various, there's certain like developmental anomalies and things like that, that don't have anything to do with diet exposure, vitamin deficiency, any, you know, there's certain things and they'll, you'll invariably have people say like, was it because I did X or Y? 
or because I didn't or eat I took enough or I didn't. Tylenol for my headache or, you know, they'll, yeah, it, it, you Correct. start to second guess every, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a natural, I mean, that's a natural thing, right? You want to make sense of the situation. And so you look back in your history and say, what are the things that could have caused this? And, and we know that for so many things, we don't have an explanation and we don't know, but we do. I mean, one thing that I do know is that most of the things that women think that they may have done to increase their risk had nothing to do with it. And so a lot of it is sort of saying, you know, I hear you. Everything you're feeling is is normal and felt by lots of other women who you just don't know about because you don't talk to them. All, you know, women often don't talk about these painful um, experiences, um, but you're not alone. And then um, you didn't, you didn't do anything to cause this and you couldn't have done anything to prevent it. I mean, there's some things, you know, like types of drug use or if you've got in a car accident or something, there's things that can cause badness, but a lot of things that we do don't cause any badness at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And you have to constantly remind people of that. Like we don't have control over those things. And so Mm -hmm. like you got to sort of like hopefully release that from your mind. Easier said than done. Um, for sure. Yeah, but I, yeah but. you seem to be a calm person. And I can imagine hearing those words from you would be very reassuring. And also trying to help people remove that misplaced guilt that you're talking about that is helpful. And then I'm sure during this time, like we say over and over, pregnant women are just, every everything's just cranked up a few notches. So um, you're probably finding yourself doing that kind of um, calming I would imagine more often. So um, yeah, definitely very needed. Um, You recently published a paper called um, titled adverse infant and maternal outcomes among low risk term pregnancies stratified by race and ethnicity. It came out in April, 2020, which looked at disparities in pregnancy outcomes by race, both for infants and mothers. Can you tell me what prompted the study and how you came up with the design? Sure. Um, so first I should say that although I spend a fair amount of my time doing research, I mostly do lab research. Um, so okay. basic science research in a cancer biology lab at MD Anderson. <laughs> so oh. I spend a lot of time um, thinking about pregnancy complications and, you know, what what are the molecular reasons that the placenta is not working well in preeclampsia and other conditions and things like that. So a lot of my research focus is actually on um, sort of the basic science of, of pregnancy, because that's mm-hmm. another sort of black box area that needs more attention. We don't understand how so many things work. And so we right. can't develop any interventions or tests to to predict them or treat them. Um, and so I'm, I'm a newbie, I would say, in um, this area of research and clinical research, but also in um, racial and ethnic disparities, but you know, it's really something that it's impossible to ignore. This, these disparities and these questions. You can't be a provider um, and serve, you know, serve women in re- their reproductive health um, and not notice. Um, you know, just listening to women coming into the office, and I think, you know, part of our job actually as MFM, come to think of it, is part part therapy. Um, <laughs> sometimes, you know, yeah. patients come in mm-hmm. for, their doctor has sent them for a specific reason, 
And But when I ask them at the beginning what their main questions are, which I always ask up front, because if you're not addressing that up front, none of the rest of the consult will. <laughs> will yeah, they're not going to hear you. Work. Yeah, exactly. Correct. So that's yeah. how we all work, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I would say a lot of them are about processing the trauma from a previous pregnancy or birth experience or something that they didn't understand about it. You know, like mm-hmm. I had the C-section, but I never knew why, you know, I didn't, you know, know um, what was happening with my baby and that really scared me. Or, you know, I felt like I kept saying this thing over and over again, but my doctor didn't hear me. Um, mm-hmm. You keep hearing these things. And in Houston, it's, it's a very diverse um population and we serve um, also the underserved population in Houston and we'll constantly hear these things from black women from Latina women um, mm. and it's it's disheartening it feels bad when you keep hearing people saying feeling that they're dismissed and that's not to say that these doctors aren't good doctors trying to do the best that they can mm-hmm. um, but there's definitely a disconnect I think between the good care that, a lot of us think we're delivering and the what how people are experiencing that right that, um, yeah that's a really so sorry, good that's, yeah that's a really good way of putting it that that sometimes the way that a provider the, the intentions that provider brings to the scenario aren't necessarily being perceived by the patient because they're just sort of talking past one another or something yeah 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 exactly yeah. and i think my actually training in san francisco in the bay area um, I think really prepared me well for this kind of, this kind of work because, um, it's, I mean, I guess it's sort of a stereotype or a cliche, but in, in, you know, we had a lot of people come with very extensive, um, birth plans and their wishes and mm-hmm. their, um, support systems and the environment they wanted and all these things. And we had to figure out a way to work with each individual person's, um, you know, which each individual person's plan and desires. And so I think <laughs> that really prepared me to kind of come and see women as uh, individuals and try to figure out what their values are and things like that. Anyway, that's a long, that's a long explanation for how I'm interested in disparities. But so one was that we see it every day uh, in our uh-huh. lives, in our practice. The second is um, I'm Asian and uh-huh. Asian women are um, often excluded or not mentioned in these types of studies. And so yeah. not just Asian women, but other, lots of other groups are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of right. it is because we're maybe a smaller proportion of the population. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that we don't exist and that there aren't data there. You just kind of need people <laughs> to care and to look, right? Right. Um, right. I've also <laughs> been thinking lately about not only just like Asian women, but also Native um, American women. Yes. I feel like yep. the Native American population is sort of jumping to the front of the news right now because of the severity of the COVID situation in those populations. But as a person who I consume a fair amount of news and scientific news, I don't really hear about that um, in other places. So I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's, that's right. Interesting. No, no, but yeah. that, you know, that's something if, if you don't see yourself being represented, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the work that's coming out, you're like, well, how does this apply to me? Um, mm-hmm. So in, a, mm-hmm. in sort of a selfish way, you can kind of like think about, well, then if, if that research needs to be done, then why shouldn't I be doing it? Um, I can do it. Um, and yeah. then, you know, the disparity really in maternal mortality and infant mortality um, has been mm-hmm. a lot you've seen in the news and things like that. But 
it's really striking and it's really a big problem. So, mm-hmm. you know, black mothers die at a rate of three to four times more likely than, than others, than white women. Um, the infant mm-hmm. mortality, mortality rate for black uh, infants is also much higher than other groups. And we have to start addressing <laughs> these right. issues. Um, and it's not about, you know, people have tried to look at or explain like, well, there's higher rates of obesity, there's higher rates of poor health related behaviors or um, less prenatal care, you know, fewer women are insured, or maybe they're, mm-hmm. you know, there's more hypertension and diabetes or whatever it is. People try to explain mm-hmm. all of these things away. But the fact of the matter is when you control for all of the factors and risk factors and socio-demographic factors that we think about, um, the disparities are still there. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's that's sort of, you know, summarizing, you know, with one fell swoop, the research is out there, but it's true. Um, and so one of the things that we tried to do with this project was, this particular paper was to look at low-risk pregnancies. So pregnancies right. that made it to term, 37 to 41 weeks is term. Um, and we excluded women that had any, any comorbidities or complications because we said, look, if all the women are low risk um, in terms of comorbidities and everyone's at term, then we come into this situation expecting the moms and the babies to do relatively right. well. It's almost like controlling um, for everything before you get there. there. Exactly. Yeah. It should be the same. But yeah. what did Yeah. It, yeah. Right. 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 Um but so, it's not. <laughs> no, exactly. So uh you had groups of um I know you had um, Asian women, you had African-American women, and then you had, I assume, Caucasian women. Were those the three big groups? Is that how you approached? And we had Hispanic women. And Hispanic women. And we had okay. Hispanic women as well. Okay. And then you were looking at outcomes for mom and baby. And um, can you walk us through how you analyzed the data and what you found? Sure. So we used birth certificate data. So this is U.S. Um, U.S. data um, from the most recent that we had, so 2014 to 2017. These are publicly available data from the CDC. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we looked at that specific group that I mentioned, low-risk singleton term pregnancies, and mm-hmm. then compared, you know, we compared all their different demographic and social factors um, between those four groups, white, black, um, Hispanic, and Asian. And at baseline, mm-hmm. you can already see that there's lots of differences in these groups. For example, disparities in insurance, mm-hmm. um, obesity, prevalence, and things like that. Then um, we looked at two um, primary composite outcomes. So composite outcomes meaning, um, you know, a bunch of factors that define neonatal morbidity or maternal morbidity. And those are the mm-hmm. things that were available on the birth certificate. Data. So for neonatal morbidity, things like, um, you know, requiring assisted ventilation, having a seizure, mm-hmm. um, death, things like that. And then for maternal, um, we had, you know, admission to the intensive care unit, transfusion, hysterectomy, uterine rupture, these types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we did was in the modeling to estimate the association between the maternal race and these outcomes, we basically control for all of the things that were different in their baseline characteristics and then see if 
the differences are still there and they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so for the mm-hmm. neonatal um, composite outcome, um, we see that, and traditionally uh, white, uh, white women and neonates of white women are the control group or the reference group. And so mm-hmm. uh, we see that neonates of black women um, have a higher risk for morbidity um, and also mm-hmm. significantly higher risk of uh, infant death. We looked at infant death also. And so those differences persisted after we controlled for um, all the other factors that could be explaining those differences. And then for um, maternal morbidity, we were kind of surprised to find that actually for the composite maternal morbidity that um, Asian women um, ended up having the highest adjusted relative risk for morbidity. And that's not something that we were expecting, um, mm-hmm. um, but was interesting. But I think it's partially a function of you know the outcomes that we looked at. Right. It's still I I I was surprised the of your findings. Um, I I guess it's maybe it's you know what what you're doing is you're going and you're finding the the data, but it's not really telling you why this is happening. Um, is it is it too too soon to ask you why you think you found what you found or do you think that's something we're going to figure out later do you I guess I just can't I can't really wrap my head around the fact that if you control for everything the um the disparities are still there yeah yeah that's that's the that's like the million dollar question it is it is isn't it sorry question but I'm just like if it's not underlying health problems is insurance. I mean, because my, my other question for you is how can we improve this? And if we know the problem is there, how do we fix the problem if we don't know the why? Yeah. Well, first I should say that there are so many more qualified people to speak on this issue who are, who are, um, you know, very experienced disparities researchers, but from what I've you know, from what I've been learning from from reading and talking with other other people is that we do know that um, lots of factors affect these outcomes that um, we don't look for it. We can't measure in studies. So things like structural racism, implicit mm. bias of providers, right? Like if right. one of our outcomes, you know, if, if you're trying to figure out um, I guess in, it's not so much in our study, but in other studies, if you have an outcome that's something like, I don't know, C-section or when to transfuse someone or something like that, a lot of these have built in um, a subjective component or a, a right. decision made by the provider. And mm-hmm. so all of these other factors that are not, we're not able to capture um, in this population-based mm-hmm. data are certainly important, especially in the pra- practice of obstetrics. Um, and there's been a lot of focus and discussion about the role of racism, um, as, you know, one of the causes, because it's not race. It's not that we're, anyone is inherently more likely to have, you know, a a uterine rupture or something like that necessarily. Right. right? It's like, 
it's everything. Access. It's all of the, yeah, it's, yeah, it's access, access, it's to poverty. The, to the it's, same it's, exact healthcare. And by access, I don't mean the ability to get the healthcare. I mean the actual ability to walk into a place and be treated the same way yes. that someone who looks differently from you would be treated. Um, so l- literally accessing the same healthcare from the system, which has so many moving parts. Um, and I think this is one thing that I think is very interesting because um, I've recently gone through this, um, not personally, but in the healthcare systems where I've worked, that when you confront providers with the information that patients feel that they are being treated differently based on their race, based on their maybe um, first language or something, providers don't, some people don't take that well. Does that make sense to me? To you, it's like you're telling them like you're a physician and your job is to help people and your patients are telling us they don't feel like they're being helped. I think that's like a blow to the solar plexus for a lot of providers. (laughs) They think like, oh my gosh, but I show up every day to work and all I want to do is help people. And you're telling me they don't think I'm helping them. That can't be right. That can't be right. So it's this ability to confront within ourselves to say, this isn't anything you're doing on purpose. You're not a bad person you're still a good physician, nurse, you know, respiratory therapist, whatever you do. But some of this stuff is showing up in the data and it's showing up in our, in the feedback from our patients. So, um, I think a lot of, a lot of it moving forward is going to be figuring out how to talk to the people providing the care. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head in saying that people want to do the right thing, you know, they're like, but my attentions are there and I'm trying really yeah, hard. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah. uh, it's, and I think we're all naturally, you know, I think people are naturally a little bit defensive when you, yeah. when you feel like you're being criticized or something, someone's saying something negative to you, but the, the people, and this is it, true in all aspects of your life, right? The only way to get right. better is to incorporate that constructive criticism to say, well, geez, if, <laughs> if this person felt that way, then clearly there's something that I can do better. And I, and the best way to find out is to actually ask that person, you know, so we have to engage, we have to engage with the communities that are being affected, you know, rather than uh, sitting in, you know, these meetings that with no diversity, you know, it's same with gender Mm -hmm. stuff too sometimes, right? You see like all these men making decisions about uh, access to birth control and things like that. And it just doesn't make any sense. Like the people boils the blood, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yes. It does. Because you have to be there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think everyone is sort of realizing that it's a gradual process, but um, I've been thinking a lot lately about what makes someone a good teacher. I don't think you can be a good teacher unless you have humility. I guess you can't be a good person. I should say you can't be a good person unless you have humility. And part of humility is admitting, even though I came to this experience with the best intentions, I still didn't do it all the way right. And I need to be able to hear the person who's on the other side of this interaction, who's telling me that I can do better, you know, because I think for a lot of people, especially people who are really smart and are experts in their area, that is a really hard pill to swallow. It's really hard for them. But to I will that. say the smartest, yeah. the, I think yeah. the smartest people, the smartest and best, smartest people and best, um, you know, healthcare providers and things that I've ever met are the ones who who are like, I'm, I'm still learning. 
I'm, right. I don't know what I'm talking about, right? I'm, I'm actually really skeptical when people say things like, we have that figured out. Or you're like, <laughs> if there's something you would change about your program or your situation mm-hmm. or your, you know, whatever. And people say things like, no, we've got it figured out. We do a great job. Uh-huh. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> that means you're that like, you're, um, no, I don't, no, I don't think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You I, to- I completely agree. Yeah. It's a lifelong always. learning process. I, when I talk to students and I'm like, listen, I know you're studying for this test right now. And I know that's the thing in the front of your mind. I have been a physician, a practicing physician for quite a while now. I, I never stop studying. I never stop learning. It never ends just because I'm not studying for a test. Doesn't mean you get to stop learning and looking things up and relearning things you thought you knew that you forgot, et cetera. So yeah, that's so important to, um, to recognize the good, the people who are doing it well and how we can all do better. Um, and I just want to, um, my final question for you is about Texas and I know you're not a Texan, a native Texan, but, um, Texas is opening back up and, um, some, especially in the South, it seems like sometimes politics is playing a bigger role than necessarily what science scientists and physicians would recommend. How does it feel to be a physician in Texas right now? Do you think, like, do you see people mostly here in a healthcare setting? So probably yes, but wearing masks, do you think people are distancing? How does that feel right now? <laughs> yeah, well, we, you know, we definitely were nervous to be one of the, the first states um, to op- reopen businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they tried to, you know, impose like limits on the capacity in public places. The schools are still closed. Um, okay. I see lots of people wearing masks. You know, the messages are there. Um, okay. For sure. But just like at any other place, you'll hear about, oh man, I, you know, took a jog by the park and people were, there were tons of people and they were all close together. And yeah. I, I think everybody's hearing about those stories. You know, luckily for us, or maybe not, I don't know, we, we, we are sort of in a bubble, right? If we right. sort of are yeah. doing our own thing, going into the medical center where people are um, being very careful and protecting themselves. And I think we're at a point now too, where actually probably healthcare workers, first responders, things like that may even be at lower risk because we're constantly I see. viewing Around everybody with potential are, exactly. nectar, right? And yeah, then you're all doing exactly. the same practices, but then people who are out there being like, this isn't a big deal are not no, taking I don't know anybody who has COVID yet. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know? That's, so yeah. those are the ones, the community spread is really, <laughs> this is what I try to tell my patients, you know, they're like worried about yeah. coming to the office and I'm like, well, you know, if you're going to the store or anywhere yeah. else where there's people, um, that might actually be a scarier At this place point. in some that's, ways. That's yeah. true. Yeah. And my friends throughout <laughs> the country, it's interesting because I'm in the Northeast, right? Rhode Island is sort of sandwiched between two of the hottest spots in the country, yes. which thankfully are sort of cooling off a little bit, but Boston and Massachusetts and then New York slash New Jersey and the surrounding areas. So it's been, I think, much earlier up here, things sort of shut down and everybody started taking it like way more seriously. Um, like I remember you said something about spring break. By the time spring break came around, everybody, like kids, my kids had already been out of school for a while. So um, I think it's interesting to see as it sort of goes into the South, um, how things are changing and attitudes are changing. And I just hope that everyone takes it seriously before it gets as bad. I, I pray that it doesn't get as bad down there as it did up here for people to sort of wake up and, you know, 
for masks just to become like a new accessory that everyone carried. I've seen them <laughs> hanging from people's rear view mirrors now. And I'm like, okay, yeah. I guess that's okay. I guess you just throw it on when you leave the car. That's lovely. Just keep it there. That's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I, I don't really know what else is what's going on in the rest of Texas. Cause yeah. I do feel like we are in this bubble in right. the medical center with all these other people, but um yeah, that's I'm, well. That's I, good for for you and your patients, though, because I imagine pregnant women and their families are very likely to take this very seriously about protecting, you know, their pregnant relative or friend or spouse or partner. So um, you're probably enriched in that sense. So yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, it was really great talking to um, to you today. I I really appreciate hearing about your work and your thoughts on what's going on out there. Um, my final thought for today is that um, I, I often, I especially during this time, I've sometimes almost become overwhelmed with the what if questions, and you know, what if it gets this bad, or what if this happens? And um, I, you know, I reached out to you through Twitter. That's where we met, and um, it was really nice to see someone who was a scientist, someone who was doing maternal venal medicine, which I consider probably one of the hardest jobs in medicine, and that you're out there trying to, you know put data to things like um, healthcare disparities and that the only way all of this is ever going to get better if people like you are out there doing things like this. So it's very reassuring. I wanted to thank you for talking to me and um, also pass it back to you in case you have any final thoughts you'd like to share. Thanks for um, those really kind words. I, I agree with you that uh, Twitter has been a great place to um, connect with people who you normally wouldn't get to, like pathology Twitter is is a happening place um, for sure I think in terms <laughs> think of education good. and stuff yes yeah well we're uh, a visual I, medium really right incredible. and so we can really yeah. put nice pictures yeah 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 I like, love it I've learned so much um, just from following people like you but um, final thoughts um, I, I think it, the thing that has helped me the most in terms of that getting over that anxiety and feeling overwhelmed every day thing is um, to disconnect a little bit so yes. we got in this horrible habit of basically catching up on all of those super long White House, um, <laughs> those White House media oh. sessions. We would watch the entire yeah, thing, the, watch all of the uh, news and watch the pundits. And uh, uh, we did it every night for a while when things were just starting. And I'm sure a lot of people were right. doing that because it was 24-7 uh-huh. coverage. And um, we, we stopped. We stopped doing that and that had a significant... And you feel better. Uh, yeah. You feel better. You just... And we just yeah. don't need to be that close to it. Plugged like in. Minute, I, minute yeah. Thing. I totally agree. It's it's not helpful to know the minutia, at least. Yeah. For real. Absolutely. And so yeah. anyway, disconnect. Well, go it. outside. Disconnect. Go you for know. a walk. You can listen to podcasts while you're walking in the woods. So it's That's perfect. right. Amen. That's right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been Deeper Levels, and we'll talk to you all soon.